You're listening to New Voices, a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Haley Brennan. In this episode, I talk to Sergio Gallegos Urrica about the philosopher Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz. Sergio is an assistant professor at John Jay College. The two of us talk about Sor Juana's accounts of shame and love, about the way her writings are motivated by her identity as a Mexican woman, about how she approaches philosophy absent social and institutional support, about how to get started on reading and studying Sor Juana as a philosopher, and about how to approach philosophical texts that are not written in analytic argument form. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, Haley. My name is Sergio Gallego Sordorica, and my primary areas of research and teaching are Latin American philosophy, uh, early modern philosophy, philosophy of science, feminist philosophy. And I do have a particular uh, strong interest in certain figures, such as Juan Inés de la Cruz, uh, who has been one of my uh, primary interests in the past few years. So I'll start off by asking you, how did you get interested in and start working on Sorwana? So I first read Sorwana in high school, like most Mexican students, and some of her poems are staples in Hispanic literature classes. In particular, one of the first poems that I read from her was her famous philosophical satire, or Redondillas in Spanish, which starts with the following verses. Hombres necios que acusáis a la mujer sin razón, sin ver que sois la ocasión, de lo mismo que culpáis. In English, foolish men you accuse, women without reason, without seeing you are the cause of the very things you blame. So as a teenager, I was amazed by the quality of her poetry and by the vehemence of her defense of women. Uh, however, at that stage in my life, I only viewed Sor Juana as a poet, in part because of the context in which she was presented to me, which was a literature class, and in part because... Um, uh, the philosophy class that I took, and let me just open a brief parenthesis here. Mm-hmm. Philosophy is a mandatory subject that you have to study in high school in Mexico. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all the figures that I uh, were covered in that philosophy class that I uh, received in high school were uh, men. So it is only until later in life that I began to associate Sor Juana with philosophy, in good part because of a course on early modern philosophy that I took as an undergraduate student with Laura Benitez at the National University of Mexico, uh, which is my alma mater. And it is only much later in life, after writing a dissertation in the analytic tradition, which made me realize the strengths, but also the shortcomings of that approach, that I immersed myself in Sor Juana's writings to engage them systematically uh, as philosophical works. So I would love to hear a little bit about your work on Sor Juana uh, and what elements in her philosophy you find particularly interesting. Absolutely. So I am working currently on a number of papers that explore different aspects of her work. For instance, one of the papers concerns Sor Juana's conception of uh, shame. Uh, And in particular, what I argue in this paper is that in contrast to conceptions of shame that emerge in the Anglo-American tradition, and here in particular I have in mind Martha Nussbaum, who uh, tends to view shame as a negative emotion that is focused on demeaning, stigmatizing uh, others, and that in virtue of this, it has had 
a very uh, powerful negative impact, particularly within uh, the criminal system. Sor Juana embraces in her works, particularly in her plays, a different conception of shame as a positive emotion that enables us to create uh, relationships of interpersonal dependence with uh, others and develop a sense of responsibility and accountability with respect to our actions, uh, with respect to others. So um, in virtue of this, I see my work as basically exploring uh, Sor Juana's insights on moral psychology. Mm -hmm. I have, I'm currently also working on another paper where I explore Sor Juana's conception of love, and in particular, a very interesting distinction that she makes between what she calls rational love and effective love, mm -hmm. and explore the arguments that she gives for ultimately valuing rational love and putting it above affective love. And finally, I'm also working on a third paper where I investigate the uh, self-ascription that Sor Juana makes of herself as a monster. And I explore the uh, potential connections that exist between uh, her self-ascription as a monster and Montaigne's views of himself as a monster that he presents in the essays. So are most of these papers born out of her, her poetry or her, you mentioned some of her plays? Can you give me some of the texts that you're finding this work in? Yes, absolutely. So in the case of her plays, which are the primary works that I'm focusing on for uh, the project on uh, shame, mm -hmm. I uh, focus in particular in Amores Mas Labirinto, uh, Love is a Labyrinth, and uh, Los Empeños de una Casa, The Trials of a House, which are extremely vibrant and funny plays uh, from Sor Juana, in which uh, she explores basically how shame, as I mentioned, uh, plays a crucial role in the development of interpersonal relationships among people, allowing them to ultimately develop responsibility with respect to their own actions, and also accountability with respect to others. In respect to the uh, second project, which I concerns basically uh, Sor Juana's conception of love, I focus on a number of poems, in particular on a series of decimas, in which she basically discusses different conceptions, in which she offers uh, a taxonomy of different kinds of love. And finally, in the case of uh, the third paper that I mentioned, mm -hmm. I focus on actually some romances uh, in which Sor Juana uh, recounts basically how she's labeled by her admirers as the Mexican phoenix or as um, the tenth uh, muse and investigates what basically uh, lies be, uh, behind these uh, conceptions, in particular with respect to uh, her appellation as uh, a phoenix, uh, which is a mythological creature, but also, in a sense, a monster, in the traditional sense of monster as a monstrum, mm -hmm. uh, which basically means a sign or, uh, or portent. And I explore basically how she explores this uh, characterization of a monster that she's attributed by many of uh, her contemporaries, to ultimately see how uh, this enables her to demarcate herself from uh, them on the one side, but also educate them. Uh, because I think that the self-characterization the self -characterization that both Sor Juana and uh, Montaigne use of themselves as monsters has uh, very interesting pedagogical implications. 
Just on that last topic, in a paper of yours I've read on Sarwana on self-control, you mentioned this importance of education, that her or her approach to education, her project of educating uh, at least some other women in society. When you say that her description of herself as a monster is a pedagogical tool, is it part of her work to educate those around her? Or do you see it more as a pedagogical tool that she's using to educate her audience? Um, what kind of pedagogical tool? That's a very interesting question. And to... Uh... I mean, the answer is actually both, uh, in my view. I think that, uh, in a sense, Orquana was very well aware, basically, of her very singular status uh, in the particular context in which she was born, which ultimately made her be treated as a prodigy, but also as a bit of a freak. Uh, and this self-understanding, this self-awareness, basically, about her uh, unique status made her uh, realize that uh, she had the capacity to ultimately educate uh, herself in uh, ways that uh, were unavailable to others. But also, part of also what she wants to do is to show that uh, despite basically her singular status, in principle, the tools of uh, knowledge are available to, to everyone who is willing to basically open up themselves to engage in uh, free inquiry. And in this respect, uh, Sor Juana uh, makes a very interesting claim, for instance, in the response to Sor Filotea, where she discusses, uh, where she presents uh, nature as uh, basically an open book created by God, in which basically human beings can read and learn if they're willing to uh, basically open themselves up to engaging basically with God's creation. I'm on the topic of education and, and moving mm -hmm. away a little bit from Sarwana's own thoughts about education. You mentioned right, that you first approached Sarwana or you first read Sarwana in a literature class. And at least to my knowledge, I know that I have never been taught her works in a philosophy class. Do you have any advice on how to teach Sarwana, either to undergraduates or to graduates, how to take or how to find the philosophy in the poetry or the plays. Do you think it's maybe self-evident? Or if you have taught before, I'd be curious to hear about your experiences and your own experiences coming to this text in a little bit more detail uh, as a piece of philosophy as opposed to a piece of literature. Uh, most definitely. So I think that just as uh, for any other author, there's a variety of different ways of teaching Sarwana in ways that uh, bring about the rich philosophical insights that are present in uh, her work. Mm -hmm. And uh, one strategy that I have pursued uh, has been effective, has consisted in, uh, for instance, pairing some of her works with other philosophical readings that uh, deal with basically similar issues. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in undergraduate classes, I have I teach typically Descartes' uh, meditations initially, and then as a counterpoint to Descartes' meditations, I uh, teach Primero Sueño, First I Dream, that offers a very interesting perspective that uh, adopts, uh, in certain cases, elements of Descartes' uh, meditations, but that also departs from it in very interesting ways, and that uh, basically opens up room for actually questioning some of the assumptions that Descartes basically makes in the meditations, and that typically people take for granted without uh, questioning them. Mm -hmm. So, so Juana is a great way to basically 
prompt students to uh, reflect basically on the assumptions that Descartes uh, makes and to ultimately push them to read uh, more critically um, uh, certain texts of uh, the classical canon of philosophy. So I have an undergraduate researcher who helped me with the project, uh, Maria Giordani, and she was particularly taken uh, with the poem First Dream and the Mm -hmm. philosophical theme she found in it. She, in reading it, found these universal philosophical themes. So just as you were saying, you know, she, having had undergraduate classes, which focused more on what we now take to be the, we have taken to be the the canon of philosophy in, in some scare quotes. But I was wondering if you had, especially with this point of comparison, if you thought that Sir Juana's status as a woman, but in particular a Mexican woman, how to influence her, her philosophical thought or whether it does have an influence on her thought, whether she writes poetry or philosophy that's meant to be situated, that can be situated, or whether these themes are meant to be, can be pulled out, uh, and which way you think is way to teach or read her work. Well, I think that uh, it's very important to understand that Sor Juana's work is very clearly situated, and she herself is very much aware of her particular uh, social uh, context, uh, which clearly influences the way in which uh, she writes. Just to give a very brief example that is particularly associated with Primero Sueño, so Descartes typically, uh, Descartes presents in the Meditations a skeptical scenario in which uh, dreaming, which is something that we typically uh, do at night, is uh, considered as a way to uh, basically motivate a skeptical doubt. Uh, so in this sense, uh, dreaming, uh, which is something that we do uh, at night, is used by Descartes as a mechanism to ultimately prompt philosophical reflection. But uh, ultimately, dreaming itself is something that is uh, left unaddressed by Descartes as a way to basically gain knowledge. And one of the very interesting uh, things that Sor Juana basically uh, does is suggest that through basically the process of uh, dreaming, we can basically gain uh, knowledge uh, given that our our minds at uh, daytime are typically burdened with the task of basically governing our bodies. Mm -hmm. So in this uh, sense, the fact that Sokwana is very much aware of how her uh, situatedness Mm -hmm. as as a woman within basically the particular society that uh, she lived in, which basically imposed a a series of obligations uh, to her, ultimately prompted her to ultimately uh, reclaim dreaming Mm -hmm. as a space uh, for uh, basically, uh, as a a space for inquiry. And this is also something that connects with other claims that she makes in uh, some of her works, for instance, in uh, the response to Scrofilotea, where she mentions that it is, uh, it has been oftentimes through activities such as cooking, where she has basically, which is an essentially uh, gendered activity, or at least was a gender activity in uh, the 17th century. Mm -hmm. It is through cooking that she has been able to gain knowledge that otherwise would have been uh, perhaps inaccessible to her. Would you mind going into a little bit more detail? Does she explain how she gains this kind of knowledge through cooking? Yes. Uh, So uh, in one of the uh, most known passages of uh, the response to Filotea, she mentions, she describes actually a series of experiences that she performs in uh, the kitchen where she uh, makes eggs boil in 
uh, grease or in syrup. And she did, uh, discusses basically the different reactions that basically take place. And she mentions that it is basically through these activities, which are, in a sense, experiments of uh, natural philosophy that she's basically performing, mm-hmm. that she's able to gain a knowledge that other people, in particular men, who uh, typically do not engage in cooking, are uh, usually unaware of. So from what you're saying, it sounds like she is clearly committed to the idea that there both is a certain kind of knowledge, but certainly a way to knowledge that only maybe some subset of the population have access to. And she... Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's bringing to life. Just on the terms of accessibility of philosophy, the thought that philosophy could be done in the process of cooking a meal mm-hmm. is such a wonderful idea to make salient to students and, and to people in general. You know, if anyone approaches the academy without, you know, a kind of an academic background, I think it's, it's a nice, lovely idea to suggest. And, and I think a, a true idea that you can do philosophy in a, in a myriad of different ways. It doesn't have to just be through treaties. On that, on that note, do you have a text or any text that you could assign to all philosophy students at your institution of Sirwana's? If you could pick any text of hers. Yes, definitely. So if, if I could assign any text to all philosophy students at my institution, I would assign actually uh, two works. Okay. So Sor Juana's, uh, The Answer to Sor Filotea, mm-hmm. and actually I would add to that another piece written by uh, another uh, important uh, Mexican uh, philosopher, uh, the Mexican journalist and activist Elmina Galindo, mm-hmm. uh, which is an address titled uh, La Mujer en el Porvenir, so Women in the Future, mm-hmm. that she gave in 1916 at the height of the Mexican Revolution to the first feminist congress in Yucatan. And I would assign basically these two texts because of two main reasons. Uh, first, I think that feminist philosophy has been typically associated with European authors, for instance, Mary Estelle, Mary Wollstonecraft, Simone de Beauvoir, and focusing exclusively on these figures leaves often students with the mistaken idea that the only significant criticisms against the subordination of women and the only arguments for women's political, educational, and sexual rights have been crafted by Western figures. And I think that this erases or at least downplays the contributions of non-Western women. And second, I believe that engaging with texts of both Juan and Armila Galindo can teach an important lesson to students, which is what uh, you were just mentioning, namely that good philosophical work can be found and can be done in multiple forms. So, for instance, through letters or through political addresses that are not limited to traditional journal articles or academic books, which is uh, the format that most of us in the profession are compelled to write in and read. And I think that once students realize that philosophy can be done in a multiplicity of different formats, this allows them to see that philosophy is not limited to the academic sphere, but that at its best, it is something that permeates or that can permeate all human activities and that can because of this, provide a great compass to live a good, meaningful life. So would you ever consider in your classes, or maybe you haven't planted this before, uh, assigning students some sort of project where they're able to write philosophy through non-essay or paper-based means? Is that something you've tried or have you thought about? Yes, definitely. I mean, it's something that I have considered. (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, given that as you know, we live basically in uh, and work in uh, institutional uh, settings that basically demand that uh, certain student learning objectives are basically met and that yeah. require these student uh, learning objectives to be measured. 
it's uh, proven difficult to devise <laughs> uh, basically an assignment in which a student would write, uh, for instance, a piece, a piece of poetry that would enable to show basically that uh, this work basically meets the uh, student learning assignments in measurable ways. Yeah. So uh, I, I very, I'm very, very interested in basically doing this project. Yeah. Unfortunately, I haven't quite uh, figured out how to uh, accomplish it within uh, the strictures that I have to uh, work with. Yeah, that's completely fair. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> you still have to get the credit for the class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would like to return a little bit to the research that you're doing on Sarwana. So you mentioned the concept of shame. You also mentioned that you defended that she had two views of love, rational love and effective love. Yes. Uh, would you be able mm-hmm. to talk a little bit more about these two distinct conceptions of love? Yes, most definitely. So Sor Juana understands basically rational love as uh, a love that ultimately emerges from understanding. Mm -hmm. So in this sense, uh, it is basically a love that is uh, uh, essentially guided by a kind of respect, whereas what she calls effective love is basically a kind of affection that is, in a sense, deprived of reason. And according to Sor Juana, one can see very clearly the distinction between these two different types of love in terms of the effects that uh, they basically have. So, for instance, she points out that in the case of affective uh, love, since it is basically, uh, it arises just purely from our animal nature, it leads uh, us oftentimes to basically uh, do foolish uh, things or to behave in uh, inappropriate ways. Whereas uh, rational love, which is intimately tied to uh, basically the respect of others, is ultimately a form of love that involves uh, basically acknowledging uh, the other also as uh, a person rather than person, rather than as an object of uh, desire. And you are, you mentioned that you find, you're finding these across some from her poems. Uh, they're not just concentrated, if I remember correctly, right, in one poem. It's, it's a is it more of a systematic view? Yes. So this is a view that emerges in a variety of yeah. different poems. Yes. I know, and I know you've written on this, um, or at least it is. And I love footnotes. It's in a footnote of <laughs> your mm-hmm. paper on self-control. But I wondered if you wouldn't mind um, saying a little bit here about the value of systematizing a thinker like Sorwana or Sorwana in particular, um, and going across her work and, and pulling out these positions that, um, despite maybe rhetorical flourishes or apparent contradictions within the positions, do form a coherent and committed philosophical view. So one of the things that I uh, do want to uh, mention is that I think that in the case of Juana, one of the things that is of uh, capital importance uh, to ultimately do work on uh, her is ultimately prudence. And I think that this is of particular importance because uh, one can sometimes uh, read in Juana or other figures uh, like hers, one can read them outside of their context and does basically apply to them methodologies that uh, the scholar thought. And the specific example that I have here is that when I started engaging Sor Juana initially, I realized that her works ultimately brimmed with internal tensions and contrast. Now, in virtue of my analytic training, I initially dealt this with this by attempting to ultimately reconcile these tensions and assuage these contrasts. But I 
I also came to realize that to some extent this amounted to do uh, a bit of an injustice to Sor Juana because Sor Juana is uh, a paradigmatic example of the Spanish Baroque, mm-hmm. which is an artistic and cultural movement that is characterized by a series of tensions between contrasting elements. And once I came to realize, I saw that attempting to basically read Sor Juana in a way that aimed to basically reconcile systematically all the uh, contrasting elements and uh, tensions amounted to a certain extent of failure to understand her in her own terms because these contrasts and and tensions are to basically some extent uh, central to her thought. Now, that doesn't mean that it's impossible to ultimately engage or try to engage her thought in a systematizing and unifying way. But one must be ultimately careful in when uh, doing this, in not performing basically this work in a way that ultimately homogenizes all the different strands of uh, her rich thought, which sometimes clash with uh, others in ways that are extremely rich and uh, productive. Yeah, so engaging with this work in a prudent way, making sure to contextualize it properly so that you don't lose the value Exactly. in attempting to put it into our maybe analytic philosophy box is too strong, <laughs> but for exactly, lack of better words. Yes. Mm-hmm. What other advice do you have for carrying out this kind of work, uh, especially for thinkers who, so one of sounds like a paradigmatic example, whose, whose value and interest comes in large part from the fact that they aren't doing what we today take to be paradigmatic analytic philosophy? Yes. So another, I mean, another virtue that I think it's important in addition to basically Mm -hmm. prudence uh, to study Sor Juana or other figures like her is uh, patience. And this is of uh, critical importance, I think, because uh, Sor Juana often deploys her immense literary and poetical talent to present her philosophical ideas. And in virtue of this, she systematically uses a variety of mythological and religious allusions that are often obscure, even to uh, modern cultivated readers. And she also employs a variety of uh, rhetorical devices, for instance, antiphrases, synecdoche, ellipses, mm-hmm. metaphor, to express her views in ways that often leave ample room for divergent interpretations. So as a result of this, Learning to appreciate fully the richness and complexity of the thought of Sor Juana is not an easy task. It's something that I think requires basically years of persistent work and constant dedication. But I think that the rewards of this labor are are really immense in terms of intellectual growth and personal satisfaction. That ties in nicely to, to the last question I had. What do you think is lost when we do not? teach and research Therwana, or vice versa, what do you think is gained by the study of her work? Yes, definitely. So I think that um, there are two important lessons that are uh, not grasped when we do not uh, teach and research Therwana in philosophy. First, I think that we fail to appreciate that uh, philosophy was in the 17th century, just as it is uh, today a global human endeavor that transcended the geographical borders of uh, Europe. Uh, Why is this? Because uh, while many contemporary philosophers and even historians of philosophy uh, still restrict themselves in their teaching and their research to a rather narrow canon, philosophers in the 17th century had a much broader conception of what was worth reading and engaging with. I'll just mention an example of this. So, 
uh, we know that Descartes basically learned logic at uh, the College of La Fleche by studying the Logica Mexicana of Antonio Rubio de Rueda, who was uh, a very prominent uh, Jesuit that traveled to uh, Mexico, that taught uh, for decades uh, there, and that penned his most important works there. So philosophers in the 17th century had a much more cosmopolitan outlook about what philosophy was that I think we should, that I think we can capture if we basically engage with Sor Juana's work in philosophy. Also, and a second important lesson that I think is lost when we do not teach and research Sor Juana is that uh, failing to engage Sor Juana as a philosopher ends up uh, perpetuating a kind of pernicious view that since Sor Juana was primarily a poet and a playwright, the proper place to study her works is within modern languages departments. And this reinforces, in my view, a very chauvinistic attitude that is manifested in a type of discipline border patrolling that prevents us from developing a more accurate and comprehensive uh, grasp of our intellectual past. Indeed, these figures, in particular Sor Juana, uh, didn't see themselves as basically being boxed in uh, very narrow spaces. They saw themselves as basically engaging in very broad intellectual enterprises that uh, manifested themselves in a variety of different ways. And I think that ultimately uh, trying to box uh, Sor Juana as a poet or a playwright uh, is ultimately problematic because it makes us lose a very important dimension of her thought uh, which is philosophical in uh, various respects, that is not properly uh, captured when we just fail to address uh, her in philosophy classes. I'm certainly very, very interested from everything we've talked about. I, I want to go out and read more so on us. Where, where should I start? You mentioned these two crucial texts, um, but if I just want to pick up and look at Sorwana, how should I, or how should a listener begin? Okay, so in addition to Primero Sueño and uh, the response to Sor Filotea, which are, I would say, her two most important philosophical works, there's also a variety of other smaller or uh, minor texts that I think are as important to ultimately understand uh, her work. In particular, one poem that I make my students read systematically is Philosophical Satire, which is uh, the uh, poem that I mentioned at the beginning of our interview, where she rehearses in a very uh, systematic and uh, passionate way uh, the double standard that women are systematically subject to by men, since they're typically seen as uh, either prude or ultimately a lustful. And uh, this is uh, ultimately a great way to uh, begin engaging her thought, since the poem is rather short, but it also presents in a very clear uh, way uh, the double standard that uh, women are subject to, echoing actually uh, very clearly, uh, for instance, Christine de Pizan uh, in it. Also, another text that I typically assign to my students is a romance uh, that Sor Juana basically 
uh, wrote in which she responds to a romance that was addressed to her as a, uh, a letter by a gentleman from Peru in which uh, the gentleman recommended uh, recommends to her that she turns into a man. <laughs> given that, yeah, given, given that since Sor Juana basically had uh, poetic and intellectual ambitions, well, the proper uh, way to basically fulfill these poetic and intellectual ambitions was ultimately to be a man. And Sor Juana in this poem basically responds in extremely uh, powerful and also funny ways to this suggestion. Uh, mm -hmm. This text is also wonderful to present to students because Sor Juana exhibits in it uh, a very uh, exhilarating sense of irony that just cracks up uh, the students and makes them uh, to engage more with her work. I was going to say, I mean, this is very uh, relatable themes, you know, if only just responding to someone yes. who <laughs> offers their affections in misguided ways. I think that would be a great intro. I mean, my second question, you, you started to answer, but to end, if you had to, if you could put together, an, mm -hmm. let's say, an early modern syllabus or a syllabus that in, included Sirwana, what else would you, what else would you include on it? What would you, how would you like to structure that class? That's, uh, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I, uh, I would love to ultimately teach as part of an early modern uh, syllabus are actually some of uh, Sor Juana's texts that are uh, typically not read. So, for instance, uh, her plays, uh, which I've uh, focused on for Project on Shame, are extremely interesting in terms of the psychological exploration that she makes of uh, her characters and offer basically a way of engaging uh, reflection on actually uh, the complex interplay between different people in particular, between um, lovers that are uh, ultimately concerned about engaging in actions that might diminish them in the eyes of uh, their beloved, uh, but they're also mindful about, in a sense, uh, revealing too much uh, about themselves or putting themselves in uh, vulnerable positions. So I, I would like very much to ultimately include uh, Love is a uh, Labyrinth and uh, The Trials of a House, a philosophy class syllabus. Unfortunately, the plays are, are not translated into English, or at least I haven't been able to find uh, translations. So that's actually something that I want to do at uh, some uh, point to translate some of parts of the plays so that they can be accessible to uh, English speakers as a way to enable them to engage with uh, the rich philosophical uh, content that is basically presented in uh, theatrical form. Dialogues, right? Are yes, not that exactly. far removed yeah. from, from plays. So, yeah, this is well, thank you so much. I mean, this is you've brought to light so many incredible things about Sir Juana's work and the importance of her philosophy, both in its mm -hmm. inherent interest, I mean, these, this doctrine of shame and these conceptions of love, but also insofar as she does philosophy very clearly from the point of view of a Mexican woman and the point of view of, of someone who doesn't have access to or is not participating in the academy. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. I this example about learning philosophy through cooking, I think is be so valuable to have in the classroom. So thank you very much. This is, yeah, this has been so interesting. Before I end, do you have any do you have final things you want to say or any final questions you want me to get in? 
I just wanted to thank you so much for the opportunity to speak about Sorpona to uh, the listeners of the podcast. And I encourage uh, to all of the listeners to read and engage her work insofar as she is one of the most outstanding uh, intellects of her century. And there is, I would say, uh, no better way to engage in uh, philosophy than uh, reading actually some of her poems that speak to certain uh, aspects, basically, of human experience, in particular, uh, women's human experience that are essential to develop a more refined experience of basically w what is to be a human being. Thank you for listening to New Voices. Production of the podcast is funded by the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada as part of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. Thank you to Maria Giardini for her assistance researching for this episode. The music you hear is 17th century female composer Elizabeth Claude Jaquette de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D major, performed on the violin by Bizzaria Armanici. For more information about the project, and for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net. New Voices is a continuation of the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. You can also find past episodes under that name in all the same places. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you. <laughs>